I came across an article, and I can't remember who wrote the article, but saying that um, it's talking about arthritis. And there's a fear among all the runners that, oh, if I keep running, it's going to ruin my knee joints. But uh, contrarily, yeah. um, it's shown yeah. that runners can actually uh, help their OA by running. Yeah. There's there's several studies. I mean, there are systematic reviews. So the systematic review yeah. is an article that looks at multiple, Many. multiple yeah. randomized controlled trials that are looking at one to answer one simple question or one single question. So they put all of those randomized controlled trials together and they come up with sort of a, a, a review and a summative statement on those articles. So there are multiple systematic reviews of multiple, multiple articles that are saying exactly what you said. Welcome to the Beyond Physio podcast, where we help you move, excel, and inspire others on your journey to your next level with knowledge and advice from experts and testimonials from our like-minded community. Dr. Allison Brown, welcome to our show today. Thank you. I am so excited to have you on as a friend, a colleague, and as a former patient, if I may say that. Yes, I know. Yes. I know, right? Yes. I owe you a lot. <laughs> I owe you every triathlon I ever did. Oh, that's right. Oh, my <laughs> you gosh. You are the reason I started doing triathlon. Wow. I'm, yes. very, I'm, I'm known for persuading people to do things they never thought they could do, so yeah, I'm glad you I said that. I love that. I love that. <laughs> Great. So, you know, what's really um, exciting for me, not only to be a part of Rutgers in a clinical research way, because it was also my alma mater uh, for my doctorate, but the topic of working with runners and triathletes, endurance runner, and that sort of realm of uh, sports uh, for us is central because a lot of our clients at Next Level are runners or triathletes and people who do um, appreciate uh, that sort of fitness level. Sure, yeah. And as a result, um, for me, I my deep dive into running technique and running in general uh, came as a result of reading a book by Chris McDougall, mm -hmm. uh, Born to Run. Born to Run, yeah. And reading all the research from Irene Davis, mm -hmm. who is at University of Delaware, a very well-known uh, researcher in running, and also Chris Powers, who I met at a course many years ago, uh, that really kind of like got me really tuned into how we can help runners become the best version of themselves. Mm -hmm. And there's so many elements to that. And so what excited me is, as far as being part of Rutgers is, be, is for us to be able to dive into that a little bit yeah. and also to share with our audience all the cool stuff that you're doing with Rutgers. Yeah. But before we get there, tell us about your background before you even went to PT school, your athletic background, all that kind of jazz. Sure. So I was, um, I was a high school athlete. I was always involved in endurance athletics as a high schooler when I was cut from soccer. <laughs> um, I, 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 I Nordic ski raced, so I cross-country ski raced. Um, I grew up in Vermont, so we had that. Yeah. Um, and I ran cross-country in the fall, and I ran track in the spring. Oh, cool. So I always was sort of an, an endurance-ish type athlete, and that was... I didn't run in college, but I ran recreationally in college, yeah. so I kept it up. And then um, in my 20s, once I had graduated college, was when I really started to dabble with marathons and half marathons and trying to push myself a little bit harder than just having running be a social it was really a social sport for me, largely in high yeah, school, sure. um, and where all my best friends were made was on the cross country team. Mm -hmm. But I really became much more um, intense about it when I was in my twenties. That's cool. So then from there you went to grad school for physical therapy. Did you oh, actually oh, my, my oh. undergrad yeah. from university in Vermont yeah. was 
in physical therapy. It was. Yes, I am that old. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> that you don't look my that old, undergraduate no. <laughs> degree was a bachelor's of art in physical therapy. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I moved from Vermont to the to New York yeah. and went to NYU for yes. an advanced master's in pathokinesiology. That was as part of NYU's PT program. Got it. And following my master's from NYU, I went to Temple University for my PhD. Oh, that's so cool. And along the lines, uh, along that pathway, Allison, did you then decide that you wanted to study runners more in depth? Or how did that happen? So I wanted to, the real backstory is that I wanted to teach. And yeah. I, I, coming out of high school, thought, do I want to be a physical, do I want to go to PT school or do I want to major in education? Wow. And it was in PT school that I said, wait, I could do both. Mm -hmm. So my reason for going to continue to get my higher degree was to teach. And when I got into my master's and then my PhD realized you really had to do research. Mm -hmm. I was never a lover of research. And I remember saying, I need to find something that I could be passionate about and want to spend the rest of my career mm -hmm. researching. And running had always been a passion of mine from oh. high school through into my 20s. So it just was a natural evolution. It just came really naturally to me to want to seek out um, advisors and mentors that could help facilitate that for me that's for my really, dissertation work. Yeah, that's really cool. And I think you did a stint over at HSS too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, actually through my PhD process, I was working part-time at Hospital for Special Surgery doing my dissertation work in their gate lab mm -hmm. and, con and continued um, in Phil I would commute to Philadelphia for my course, the didactic portion of my PhD. Right. But all of my research was at Hospital Special for Special Surgery in their motion analysis laboratory. Wow, that's so cool. That must have been an amazing experience. It's an amazing lab and it's yeah. an amazing facility. The hospital is really a top-notch facility. Yeah. So now their gate labs, because we have um, the Run DNA, which is a 3D um, gate analysis down in, in our carry office yep. in North Carolina. Um, is it also a 3D sort of lab? Yeah, theirs, as well as the one that we have at Rutgers, has... They, I think we both have 12 cameras. Theirs is a motion analysis system. Ours is a Vicon system. But oh, wow. they are um, 12, 12 camera, three-dimensional motion analysis systems with force plates and um, treadmills for some of our some of our running stuff. Yeah. yeah. So let's have them dive into that just a little bit, um, Allison, because um, one of the guiding principles that I have found over my career, and I'm sure for you as well, is that a lot of people, even now, um, whether you're an elite runner or elite triathlete or even a novice, uh, I don't think that the value of having your running gait checked um, has really become mainstream. Yeah. And yet it's one of the first things that I look at when somebody comes in with an injury. Sure. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. I'm, I think that our running, if, if we think of ourselves, we view ourselves as clinicians as providing sort of precision care or precision medicine, then if we are thinking about addressing somebody's running form, we need to be doing a running gait analysis in order to identify what specific features of their unique gait may contribute to their injury or may be preventative yes. in, its, in its own way. So I really, truly believe that runners should have gait analyses, even if they're healthy. Yes. It's, it's like going to the dentist and having your teeth looked at from a preventative standpoint. If you're doing a lot of mileage, I think it's worth having a running gait analysis just to say these are known predictors for injury and these are things that we identify with you that we think you might be able to address. 
when you're then seeing the injured runner, then you can really make it much more precise. Sure. Where you could say this particular, I'll use trunk angle, for mm-hmm. example. Yeah. If I have a very vertical trunk angle, I know that I have more forces at my knee. Yes. If I have more anterior trunk lean, the force is off my knee a little bit, but gets shifted to my hip or my ankle. So I might look at this the same running gait pattern differently from a runner that comes to me with an Achilles tendinopathy versus a runner that comes to me with anterior knee pain. Yeah. And you don't know that unless you've watched them run. Right. Uh, just for our listeners out there, anterior means the front and posterior means the back, uh, <laughs> just to give you a cue there. But the other thing that you touched on, which I think is really important, is uh, it is like getting sort of a checkup. Yeah. And we actually have a uh, – we prefer that our runners come in once a year just mm-hmm. to see, hey, listen, every year you're going to be a little yeah, bit different. Absolutely. And you might as well get that checked out because mm-hmm. you just don't know what that year might be yeah. something that might cause an injury. Yeah. Uh, but more importantly, and for anyone out there who's looking to get faster, you may be getting in your own way literally because you're running inefficiently. And maybe in your younger years, running the way you did got you by. You were you know, you're a podium finisher or whatnot. But now that you've gotten older – Things have not been as uh, optimal as they've been. And so by getting your gate checked out, you might be able to find a game-changing element to why you're not running as fast as you can be. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, there's, um, there's a fine line between wanting to address somebody's gate mechanics for performance because too much of a change. We know that runners tend to, the evidence shows us that runners tend to select what would be the most efficient gait pattern for them to optimize their VO2 max, to um, make themselves the most efficient. Small changes won't affect that, mm-hmm. but larger changes may affect their performance because it may affect their um, their oxygen right. uptake capacity. So we want to think about that, but we also want to say this is, you know, this is something that we know you could would make this small, subtle change and could help from a performance perspective, not yeah. just an injury perspective. That's for sure. Let's dive into your current research, which we are part of with Rutgers yes. at this point. And I love this because as a private practice owner, I, I do appreciate research because a lot of what we learn in research, we try to apply in the clinic to the best that we can. But now that we have crossed, or, or actually uh, by um, bridging that gap between what the clinicians do in the private practice setting and what the researchers do in the, in the uh, research setting, we now have this opportunity to share information and share results and also become a, uh, basically, I, the way I see this is an ascension for our practice to yeah. be able to get involved in this Yeah. Way. So first of all, thank you so much for collaborating with it's us. I mean, it's such a, it's such a, a great addition to the project to have a collaboration like this. So um, I'll talk a little bit about the project, which is ongoing. Absolutely. So we're in the early-ish stages of this, but the project that we've been collaborating on is working specifically looking at high school age cross-country runners and following both male and female runners over the course of their cross-country season. So we begin with a baseline study in the summer where we look at baseline metrics, running metrics, some strength measurements, some flexibility and mobility measurements, and and then we take some baseline surveys like training questionnaires, some sleep quality type surveys. And then we issue the runners um, the RunScribe device, which is a little pod that gets attached to their shoelaces. And it provides us with metrics, running metrics. So simple metrics, temporospatial metrics like your step rate, your step, your, you know, your cadence, your some other impact 
features, rate of pronation. So it gives us some surrogate measures of efficiency that they'll that they'll look at. Mm -hmm. So we issue them those pods. They take them for the season and they run with them as much as they can during the season. We ask for a minimum of one run per week. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the week, they sync that. So they upload their run so that we we have the run. And then they complete a they complete a an injury surveillance questionnaire. Mm -hmm. So we're looking to see a couple of things. We care to see are there any baseline predictors that could just tell clinicians or coaches or trainers, hey, this this young athlete should be red flagged mm -hmm. for injury. But we're also curious about changes that occur over the course of the season. And might there be something that arises, some sort of change in the metric? Your shock has increased by X percentage over the course of a 30-minute run. Or um, your stride rate has decreased as the season has progressed. Something that might give us some indication that a player could be flagged for maybe your training intensity is too high. Maybe your training load is a little bit too much. Let's back you off. Let's see what we could do. So we are monitoring training load. Um, trying to think of all the other stuff that we're monitoring. <laughs> yeah, it's <a laughs> so lot. it's a lot. And what we're doing is looking to see, A, which of those as a, as a baseline could predict injury, and then which changes in any of those metrics might predict injury. I love that because uh, it actually ties nicely in with some of our previous episodes where we talked about how with youth athletes in particular, whether you're a runner or not, how volume changes can really induce these issues with kids later on, especially as they hit different growth spurts yeah. and whatnot, yeah. and also the intensity that they yeah. do these things at. So I feel like this could be a great way to be translated across different sports too, sure. eventually. Yeah. I mean, specific to the running community, we know that things like training intensity yeah. um, and training load has been associated with injuries. Sure. And we found in the very early analysis that we've done, which is super early because we're, we're ongoing, we're doing another season this yeah. year of runners. We have more runners coming in. Awesome. Um, we have found that training load, specifically with our runners, it was runners that ran more miles per week at their race pace. They had an increased um, likelihood of, or increased um, number of injuries. Wow, that's then interesting. Then the runners that didn't run that many hmm. miles per week. So it wasn't miles per week at race pace. So it wasn't just miles per week. Right. It was miles per week at race pace. So it was sort of an intensity thing, not just a volume thing. Yeah. I know that uh, for, and we'll get to this later, but I know in uh, other training circles, they've talked about how most of our training should be uh, lower yeah. intensity. Yeah. And this actually correlates nicely with that. Yeah. So I'm yep. glad you mentioned yeah. that. And, and as a, as a runner who's trained for, you know, long distance events, it was always very hard for me mm -hmm. to, to hear the advice from the experts <laughs> say, slow down, slow down. <laughs> and your body is just telling you, you want to go, but everything's pointing towards don't, you don't, you don't have to go at that super high intensity all the time. And in fact, it may be protective to not go yeah. at that super high intensity. Do you think at that age, um, have we identified yet um, what some of these runners are doing outside of running that might have a protective effect? So I don't think we know that yet, mm -hmm. but I am very curious to know that. I think just from being exposed with these runners, with these 53 that we collected last year, what I saw a lot of was we did, in our baseline questionnaires, we asked them about what type of out 
and you know cross training you were doing there's not a lot of it going on mm. there's not a lot of strength training going on um there is, there was training you know certainly a handful of them were doing strength training some of them could be very specific i'm doing kettlebell training i'm doing resistance bands training but but the majority of them were not doing anything interesting i also noted that there was a there was a several runners that were running that had not run before so they might have been freshman or sophomore yeah. runners that were say they didn't make the volleyball team they didn't make the soccer team so they just pivoted from having trained for soccer all summer to coming out and not making yeah. the jv team as a sophomore and they pivoted to running with with a baseline that was endurance because soccer is certainly an endurance sure, sport yeah. I and mean, you're running a lot, but different. Yes. So they didn't have the volume. Yeah. And um, so that sort of is something that con would concern me. And I think that yeah. there is some evidence that shows that high school runners that train for eight weeks or more prior to their season are protected from injuries more than those that don't. So I think that was, that was sort of interesting to to see and just to hear them talk about you know where we had some late 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 August enrollments into yeah. our study from kids that pivoted from other sports. That is so fascinating. Um, I feel like commonsensical we do know and from our own research too that uh, the cross training does have a protective effect for mm -hmm. sure even in adults. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that we have found is that a lot of people have still have this uh, misguided or I don't know if misinformation or not, but they still think that, oh, well, I don't want to get bulky because it's going to affect my speed. Yeah. But we also know that often it's going to take a lot for you to get that bulky yeah. to not yeah. slow you down. But yeah. the protective effects of the strength training itself yes. will help you get yeah. more out of your legs. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. That's that is, I think, a message that many runners need to hear. Many runners tend to be and this is a little bit away from the high school runner now. Right. But even with the high school runners, I mean, I, yeah. I saw from the teams that I was working with, they're not doing, they just don't have time. They're mm -hmm. doing a, a lot, a lot, a lot of running. Six days a week, these kids are running. They're doing a lot of running and very little cross training. Mm -hmm. And I see, you know, my son who plays high school baseball, they're, they're taking a day or two a week in their, they're in the gym mm -hmm. as a team. That's part of their practice is going to the gym for strength training. Yeah. So I wish that you could get the message out to coaches that take a day off from running or just let yeah, them go yeah. for go out for a 30 minute run and spend some time really focusing on your mobility yeah. and your strength. Yeah, that's for sure. And I think that the performance would improve. Yeah. Do you think that getting back to high school and this might actually transfer across all ages that um, has anything like nutrition been addressed at the high school level as far as the questionnaire? So I only can speak to a small population of the runners that I had much closer contact with. And there are some coaches that I think are really in touch with it, yeah, yeah. and relaying the messages. And I think that on in some levels it's not addressed as much. Yeah. To be frank with you, I think – Probably what's happening more is that your elite varsity runners are getting more of that information sure. than your freshman or JV runners. It's too bad because I feel like if we address those issues early on, we can set them up for even greater success yeah. by the time they're seniors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. The uh, One of the things that we have found across the board, uh, regardless of age, as far as macronutrients, everybody thinks they eat more protein than they actually do. 
Um, and if you're looking at sort of like guidelines of, have, especially if you're active, having one gram of protein per pound of body weight, they fall way below that. Hmm. And so here I'm thinking that, well, no wonder you're always injured. That might be one part of mm-hmm. it. And top of the volume and other things that you're doing on your training side. But, you know, can't we create a, a situation where if you are addressing these other external factors and addressing your nutrition appropriately so that you're eating enough and you're, and you're definitely consuming the right amount of uh, macronutrients, on top of recovery, top of good sleep, uh, and no one's getting good sleep these days. Everyone's no. on the phone. It's like a whole big mess there. Yep. And your training is where it needs to be from a younger age. I just feel like we can have this sort of generation of yeah. people who are just yeah. a healthier spot yeah. overall. Yeah, I'll tell you one interesting early candidate predictor for injury in our study was sleep. That's so interesting because I mm-hmm. just did a podcast with Kate Zafaris, who is who won – uh, the bronze at uh, Tokyo in triathlon. Oh, cool. And she had said that um, the, because she was actually giving a talk to all these elite triathletes and like, oh, what do you do? It's like, my biggest advice to you all is make sure you get enough sleep. Yeah. And that was all she yeah. said. Was but I, in my head, I could see it from a performance yeah. perspective, but from an injury perspective, I, I was a little bit surprised to see yeah, that. Yeah. Definitely. So runners that slept a half an hour less per night were more likely to be injured than runners yeah. that slept a half that, that slept a half an hour more. Yeah. And remember, this is early. We have a small sample size. Sure. We had 53 runners, about 30, maybe I think 30% of them roughly were injured. And so it's a small sample size, which is why we're going to continue. But an early trend is towards sleep as being a candidate predictor. So we're going to look into sleep more deeply as we continue with our runners. So it's interesting that you mentioned that. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. So let's get into some of the issues that we see with a quote-unquote faulty gait. Mm-hmm. Are there common injuries that you have seen, uh, I know I have seen mm-hmm. uh, in the clinic as far as when you run this way, you'll probably end up with these kinds yeah. of issues. Yeah, there, there, there are. So for instance, um, individuals that have a, are real overstriders, for yeah. instance, that have a solid rear foot pattern, have high impact those runners are much more likely to have muscle, uh, t- tibial stress fractures or bone stress injuries. Yeah. So we could think about our modification as trying to manipulate some variables such as cadence in yeah. order to minimize that Strong, overstriding. Yes. Um, so that's, that's one example. I think um, there's been quite a bit of evidence that has pointed towards pathological mechanics at the hip mm-hmm. being associated with iliotibial band and patellofemoral pain Absolutely. or anterior yeah. knee pain. Yeah. Um, um, what else? Knee, yes. knee angle Huge. At, in, at impact. Yeah. Knee angle at impact is important as mm-hmm. a predictor for um, knee injuries because sure. of the increased um, forces at the knee. Yes, exactly. If you're too extended at impact. Yeah. yeah. We've seen, I mean, I would say meniscus and IT band are the two that come to mind as the most common that we see injuries in, in our runners, especially as they get, especially our marathoners who are getting towards, uh, I'd say August, September before New York. Yeah, sure. It's yeah. often when these yeah. things rear their yeah. ugly heads. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you have uh, an opinion on forefoot versus rear foot strike as far as either protective effect on a runner or an, an advantage to yeah. a runner? So. I think the evidence is pretty strong that runners that have a rear foot strike pattern, so the majority of our runners, two-thirds of our runners roughly, 
strike the ground with a rear foot strike pattern and the remaining runners will strike with a midfoot or a forefoot strike right. pattern. It's pretty clear in the evidence that runners that have a rear foot strike pattern are more likely to be injured. Yes. That's sure. that's fine. We can admit that. Yeah. I don't think that a switch to a four-foot strike pattern, I just don't think that it's a one-size-fits-all prescription. Yeah. So I think that if you are somebody that suffers from chronic Achilles tendinopathy, then a four-foot strike pattern is not no, really not. your yeah. – it's not shouldn't be your jam. <laughs> like, you're good with your rear-foot strike exactly. pattern. Right. Um, so, so I don't mind people trying to make that modification, but know that there – you might just shift your – you might shift your injury from, from one, one location to another. To another. I agree. Yeah. I used to be totally four four foot, and I have actually switched over myself. But also quickly realizing that, hey, this is not going to be good for somebody with yeah. a Achilles issue for yep. sure. Yeah. So more than that, just making sure that, um, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but I do have a lot of clients just say, listen, focus on whether you're rear foot or not. Just focus on icy landing softly, yes. so that you yes. can make sure that yes. these are going to yes. decrease the impact yep. on the tibia across. Yes. Yeah. I agree a hundred percent. And so the the real push coming coming back from like that uh, Born to Run book and um, Lieberman's article yes. with, with the the barefoot runners yeah. was that there was this you lacked this impact peak. Yes. And so the idea was that you were mid, you were decreasing your impact by running with a four foot strike pattern. So it was going to be predicted protective, and and it might very well be right. um, that that exactly is the situation. I think that some of those metrics that we commonly hung our hat on for being indicators of impact or loading has started to be more questionable in the mm, literature that curious. the you know instantaneous loading rate that we calculated as the slope of that curve yeah. um, is no longer necessarily being that that metric mm. is not necessarily associated with the injuries yet we're not willing to walk away from the fact that impact is associated with injuries so <laughs> i love the from a very like just let it roll itself out clinically just yeah. run softer yeah like Imagine you that. can hear yourself on a treadmill yes you are loud yes. make that softer and just run softer and that is a great cue to somebody and what you know what what it actually changes you know who knows, right. but but I think that that's a great modifiable, um, easy to modify. Uh, easy to modify. Yeah, you know it's funny. And if you are a runner out there, uh, in case you don't know what rear foot means, basically, if you are a heel striker, you are more at risk uh, from the evidence. Mm -hmm. It's not just what we're seeing over here. From the evidence that you are more at risk for injury. So that much more, you know, whether it's with us or someone else, like exercise physiologist, exercise scientist. Um, a research lab, um, your running coach, just make sure that you do take the time to get your running gait looked at because if you are dealing with any of these issues, Achilles, plantar fasciitis, knee issues, IT band, you know who you are out there. Make sure that you're getting your, your gait checked out because this, again, might be your way to get back to running, which I know for a lot of runners, uh, this is what they love to do the most. Yeah. Mo cool. Moving on. Let's go into the plus high school category, we'll say, <laughs> myself included. So what I'm looking at is, are there any things different in the older age groups? So we have a lot of runners who are over 40, for example, yeah. male and female. Are there any things that you have seen in the research or that you would recommend that runners do differently as they get older than when they were younger? I think, yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, and I think that... A, Older runners need to be aware of the normal physiological changes that are occurring in their body. Sure. 
So as we age, our muscles are just are stiffer, right? Yes. We we can all feel that our muscles are sure. stiffer. <laughs> we start to lose a little bit of our strength or our muscle mass. We're going to lose a little bit of our aerobic capacity. That's a natural. That's naturally what happens to us as we age. So I think it becomes much more important for runners that are older to start to diversify mm -hmm. even more and maintain a, a, a strength training program that pushes you. Mm -hmm. That's really heavier resistance strength training, not lighter resistance, higher repetitions. But I would, perf I would opt for a little bit heavier resistance with maybe some lower repetitions to really load those muscles and load your bones. Because I didn't even talk about bone density, right, mm, as, yeah. as we age. So I think that strength training becomes even more and more important as we age. Yeah, um, I definitely agree with for that the runners. Too, for sure, yeah. And what I find, and you probably have seen this in other clinics, where if you, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people who end up at a traditional uh, sort of run-of-the-mill clinic where they're seeing four or five patients an hour, a lot of these patients who are older and runners aren't getting progressed that the way they should. Mm -hmm. So they're still doing the yellow band or the pink dumbbells. Yeah, no. And it's just not enough stimulus for them yeah. to get any results yeah. from that. So yeah. they're always in pain, which is why one of the things we're talking about later on is why does PT keep people in pain? It's because after a certain point, if you're not loading that tissue right. enough, you're not going to get the right adaptation for that tissue to adapt yeah. to whatever you're going to yeah. put it through. Yeah, exactly. And there are times where obviously we have to, we have to be mindful of the pain. Yeah. You know, a, a stress fracture or a stress reaction would be a great example where you're not wanting to push somebody through that pain, but you have a tendinopathy and you need to load that tissue yeah. in order for it to heal. For sure. And so that loading of the tissue that is injured, it might have some pain associated with it. Definitely. Yeah. I've also found myself, Allison, I don't know about you. But um, as I get younger, that, uh, <laughs> that much more my warm-ups make uh, are more of a priority yeah. now. Oh, and yeah. uh, I, just like, you know, you know, the rule of thumb is if the, the more intense the activity you do, the longer time you should be spending in a warm-up. Mm -hmm. And that goes the same for us as we get older where I find that the more I'm going to run and do the things I love to do and get into fitness – uh, the more I have to spend time doing my mobility work, mm -hmm. warming up yeah. before class yeah. or workouts just yeah. because otherwise I do suffer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm guilty of not doing enough. <gasps> uh -oh. I know. I shouldn't say it. Right? I shouldn't <laughs> admit it. I know the value. Yeah. And I do put it in. And, and I arguably do more than your average you know, exercise enthusiast, yes. but still not what I would consider to be enough. Mm -hmm. um, and there are times where I'm just I'm squeezing in a workout yes. because – I got to get to work or I have a meeting yeah. and, and I'll say to myself, okay, well, you know, I'll stretch later yes. or, or <laughs> Which never happens really. <laughs> you know, I will literally run out the door to work and be like, I'm going to come home tonight and do that core workout yep. that I intended to do. And then, you know, I have three baseball games oh, and, exactly. and got to get gonna dinner happen. on the stove and <laughs> that core workout never happens. I do my best, yes. but, um, yeah. but I completely agree with you that I, I think, um, and that's kind of what I was alluding to before. I don't know if it's a shift away from such like such volume of aerobic work mm -hmm. and a shift towards splitting your time a little yeah. bit more evenly with some of the prep work, some of the strengthening. Um, yeah. yeah, cool. Um, I came across an article, and I can't remember who wrote the article, but saying that um, it's talking about arthritis. And there's a fear among older runners that, oh, if I keep running, it's going to ruin my knee joints. But 
uh, contrarily, yeah. um, it's shown yeah. that runners can actually uh, help their OA by running. Yeah, there's there's several studies. I mean, there are systematic reviews. So the systematic time, review yeah. is an article that looks at multiple, Many, multiple yeah. randomized controlled trials that are looking at one to answer one simple question or one single question. So they put all of those randomized controlled trials together and they come up with sort of a, a, a review and a summative statement on those articles. So there are multiple systematic reviews of multiple, multiple articles that are saying exactly what you said. Interesting. So if you are a runner out there with arthritis, please don't fear running. Um, you may have to get your knee looked at or your hip looked at, but it doesn't mean that you need to stop per se. Mm -hmm. It might need it might mean that you have to dial things down a little bit or change things up in how you do your running. Again, maybe you need a running gait checked, but don't fear that running and don't let uh, someone who takes an x-ray of your knee tell you that you should stop. Get that checked out by somebody who works with runners specifically mm -hmm. in the physical therapy world. Again, running coach, physiologist, who ha what have you, so that you can get the right answers and the right program that you can keep running even as you get older. Yeah, Jerry, you mentioned volume, and I think that's a really important, um, like the dosage I think is really important. And I think some studies have started to look at dosage mm. for running and arthritis. Oh, and I don't think there's, the verdict is sort of still out on it, but mm. I do think that the general message is that higher intensity and higher volume individuals are sit in a different category ah. for risk of arthritis. Yes. So your elite professional athletes actually may have a higher risk of arthritis than your recreational runner like a you or me like yeah, somebody exactly. that's not getting paid to run <laughs> like you and me we um we actually are we actually have a lower rate of arthritis than individuals that don't run ah. and individuals that are professional or competitive runners that makes so sense. don't stop running yes oh so you heard that on the show don't stop running but do get this checked out now, I want to dive a little bit into, Dr. Allison, you yourself, because um, the more I do these podcasts, the more I realize that a lot of our guests are really super busy. I mean, you're doing, you know, top tier stuff in your research, Dr. Allison. You're doing, you know, you're also the super mom with three kids. <laughs> three boys. Loving yep. spouse. Um, and you, you actually are part of a softball league yourself at one point, <laughs> as I recall. So I tell am, us, I do. share with us, because I know there are a lot of clients that we have, oh, I don't have time for this. Yet you and I and many others like us do fit this in somehow, get our exercise in somehow. For me, like an hour, hour 15 is like my max for the day because I have so many things mm -hmm. going on. Mm -hmm. What is it like for you to fit your fit, fitness, fitness into your lifestyle? So I, an hour and 15 would even be a lot for me. 70 mm. minutes is usually where I, um, 70, right 70 yeah, <laughs> 70 is like my number. Um, and sometimes I split it to mm. be honest with you, ah, Jerry, you sometimes I will do my, like a strength workout in the morning yeah. and then I'll come back later mm. and do my sort of aerobic or whatever, yeah. um, whatever, whether it's bicycle ride or run or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, I schedule, mm -hmm. that's all. Same. That's all I have to do. Go yeah. to bed early. Oh my God, imagine that. Uh-huh. I, I really, I love going to bed early. Yes. And I love going to bed early because I feel like my workouts are good. I agree. And I feel like I'm spot on at work. Yes. And um, so I believe in an early bedtime and I schedule it. So I will look at my week and I will say, on this day, I can't 
I just know that I have to be out of the house by 6.45 in the morning and I'm not getting home and then I have kids' sports. So that is a Wednesday and I, I can't work out that day. So that's fine. I yeah. mean, you got to give yourself some grace. But then it has to happen on Monday or Tuesday or Thursday or Friday, right? right. So I look ahead at my week and yeah. I, I, I'm a big schedule scheduler mm-hmm. for all things. So that's how I get meals planned for my family. That's yeah. how I get manuscripts written for work. That's how I get lectures prepped. That's how I, you know, do the lineup for my third graders recreational baseball team that I coach. <laughs> so um, awesome. you schedule it. Yeah. And that's this. I, t- I treat my exercise no differently. And my family is even my three children. So I have a third grader, a sixth grader and a ninth grader. All of them know how valuable mm-hmm. my 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 workout they'll they'll say to me you're working out yeah. how valuable that time is to me yes and i'm a strong believer that doing that makes me a better person it makes yes. me a better mother it makes Absolutely. me a better employee it makes me a better wife so i think that um one of my one of my favorite peloton instructors always says self care is not selfish it's not and it's so that. true that self care is truly selfless that's what that's that's the way i phrase it to my family is like yeah. you know i'm going to be better for you if you just give me this 45 minutes or 60 minutes yeah on the same yeah. way and i feel like that's the only way i've been able to um i i don't say i don't want to say that it's the only way but it is a main way for me to get my mental health sort of going too yeah it helps me deal with stress better on a yeah, day-to-day basis. Yeah, sure. um, I'm also the same uh, way where I I'm sleep. I'm usually sleep between eight and nine, eight nine p.m. Ooh, you make All... me look like a night owl. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> and my kids know, like, hey, don't ask daddy any questions after seven because he'll just keep like, oh, the oh, oh, answer yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, definitely, I agree with that. I'm usually up by, by four, four thirty in the morning, but that's my time to do my deep work. Yeah. And then I get yep. into my workout. Yeah. So for me, that's how I maintain my productivity mm-hmm. uh, mentally and with business, but also get my own um, self-care in as well. Yeah. I used to, I mean, I never went to bed that early, but I did, I used to be an always early morning, 5 a.m., wake up and mm. work out. And it has actually become harder for me. And I think just as I age, it's uh, become harder yeah. for me to, to feel like I'm getting a good workout at yeah. 5 in the morning. So mm-hmm. I've shifted a little bit. Yeah. And I will stick things in. It will be my lunch break at work. Oh, um, I or I'll I'll say, well, I need to. We're we're testing our inventory for our run scribes, which yes. means like all sixty run scribes need right. to be tested. And so I'm like, <laughs> I'm just going to go and go for a run and yes. test the run scribes, and it's work. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> so, um, <funny. laughs> so I tend to squeeze it in during the workday. I used to be like that. I used to be able to be really productive early in the morning. Yeah. I do it maybe once a week now, yeah. but it's not my best time to work out anymore. Got it. Everyone's got their own rhythm too, which is great. Yeah. Uh, I did want to sort of close our episode today. And again, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. Maybe three or four takeaways that our runners should hear, whether they're a youth runner or if they are a an older runner. I think that running is, you, we touched on this earlier yeah. with like nutrition. We've talked about training volume. I think that one of the best things that runners can do for themselves is to keep a training log. Yeah. Um, a running log yeah. where you're monitoring your sleep, mm. where you're aware of your diet, where you're aware of your mileage, mm-hmm. where you're aware of your session RPE. Mm-hmm. So I like to tell runners to monitor that, that their RPE over that particular session yeah. to give you an idea of the training intensity and volume. Yeah. So that you can look at how that session felt to you to see what your body needs in terms of recovery. Yeah. Um, I love that feedback that you get from it too. Yeah. That's awesome. Yep. Um, I think 
that's sort of one of the tips that I love to give runners is yeah. just monitor it and follow yourself. And then you know when your body needs a break because every every uh, every training program needs to have some recovery built into it, whether it's a couple days of maybe it's just, you know, I'm just going to do yoga yeah. this day or something restorative yeah, and not just running all the time. Yeah. That was, that's actually great advice. And I feel like if people just become more aware of what they're doing on a day-to-day basis – and along the lines of what you just said, like, well, how much sleep did I get? What did I actually eat that day? Yeah. All these kinds of metrics, like you said, um, I think you can really create this uh, bigger picture of what you can and can't, what you can do to optimize yourself. And at Next Level, we take very much a whole person approach. So these are the exact kinds of questions that we ask our clients when yeah. coming in. It's like, listen, I want to know what you've done, what you're doing right now, so that I can give you a better program and plan for how we can get you back better than ever. Yeah. My other piece of advice, I think, just from years of, of patient care and and in, and now my patient care is largely just having runners come into the to the running lab to just do running biomechanical studies. But um, I too often see runners that that hear, you know, I should be having a four foot strike pattern, or they hear that they should be mm-hmm. should changing be. their cadence, right? Yeah. And they make drastic changes. Yeah. And I think that those types of changes need to be made incrementally and are best made under the guidance of somebody that can sort of monitor you and give you a stepwise progression for it. Yeah. So what, be it a trainer, a physical therapist, a personal trainer, who, you know, whoever it is, that could do a running gait analysis and then follow you. Yeah. I think important. that's really important not to just make drastic changes because you read an article in runner's world magazine that told you you should (laughs) do this (laughs) it's funny we actually when we went through that four foot strike craze i would often tell patients when they came in or or runner or clients i'd say listen where are you in your training season your race season well i'm about eight months out nine months out from new york okay great so here's some things i'm going to teach you a couple drills to start getting your tissue ready for that kind of meditation because Mm -hmm. for you to all of a sudden go from a heel strike run sure. to a forefoot and you think you're going to be running five, 10 miles a day on that, you're going to get into killing yeah, yeah, issue yeah. and pound of fresh issue. Absolutely, yeah. My, my other takeaway from this, um, Dr. Allison, was basically making sure that you do get your running checked out by somebody, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that um, if you do have something going on that you also check get it checked out too. Don't yeah. run through pain. For sure. Yeah. Don't run through pain unless you've had it checked out with somebody and somebody says... You're okay. You're okay to run exactly. through pain. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Allison, for coming on our show. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. It's been really a lot of fun. Is there anything we want to talk about as far as um, reaching out to any families out there who might be interested in having their young runners uh, in their fa- in the family to get part of the study? Yeah. 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 So we're, we're going to start data collection. So this is being recorded in June of 2023, and we are going to start data collection at the end of June or beginning of July of this summer. So anybody with a high school cross-country athlete male or female doesn't matter the level of the athlete um could be a freshman runner a jv runner a varsity runner um we would love to have them involved in the study we have data collection sites in northern jersey mm. one right here yes. where we're sitting in Woodcliff, the Woodcliffe lake office as well as your montclair office we have blackwood and we're working on um collaborating with the facility also in greenwich connecticut oh, so we'll have some reach nice. to the connecticut to the southern connecticut area as well oh, that's so cool so any runners that any parents with runners their kids will be compensated the kids are paid wow or yeah they get paid for the baseline study 
and they get paid for every single week that they sync their run scribes and wow. complete the training questionnaire. So I the runners that. will make money for, <laughs> Just, for us aiding with science. You know, I'm going to have to now recruit my daughters into this. So there you go. <laughs> oh, I, I yeah. Got, there we go. Are your daughters cross-country runners? <laughs> They're not, but they know That's an inclusion criteria. That oh, you yes, have to be a, a high school a cross-country runner. runner. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, okay, sorry. It. Oh, well. <laughs> so, and I uh, will include your information in the show notes for any families Perfect. out there. Perfect. Yeah, so drop them in the show notes, and I'll have my contact information for anybody that's interested. Yeah. So you won the lottery. Okay. But the requirement to collect is you have to work a full-time job still. Okay. But it cannot be the job that you currently do. All right. So if I win the lottery, I have to work full-time. But, but it not cannot be my job. In. Yeah. So what about jobs where I have to go back to school? I mean... I'm not going to lie to you. Like running a coffee shop would be like one topped of my list. Oh, that's so we were talking about food truck. Yeah. I, oh, I yeah. want to do a food truck. My, oh, my coworker God. wants a food truck. <laughs> We've had this conversation before. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> not with the lottery involved, yeah. but you know, <laughs> um, I love the idea of a coffee shop yeah. and just watching people come in and study and yeah. work and having your regulars, but in a low key with like some nice jazz music, music in the background oh, seems like such a good vibe and yes. i love coffee oh, yeah. even though i try to limit myself to one cup a day wow um so i think that would be it if i had it to do all over again mm. and i could and i could choose all over again i might have gone the medical school route to be honest interesting yeah i was actually the same way um yeah. i probably would have gone that route too had i had was over again and go back to school. Yeah. I don't think I would go into orthopedics, which is interesting. That is interesting. And the true reason is because I'm I'm super blessed with my mm. career yeah. as a physical therapist and now in academia. Yeah. I'm super blessed with the flexibility that I have yeah. that I can work and I can put in a few hours in yeah. the weekend. But that means that I at you know, yesterday I stopped working at four thirty mm. to take my son to a baseball lesson well, and then I had back to back baseball games. And you can't do that with all professions and I don't think you can do that in orthopedics. It's, it's very hard so yeah. I Probably knowing what I know now about how valuable it is as yeah. a mom to have the ability to have a flexible work schedule mm-hmm. so that you could be around your children, um, I might choose something like a being a pediatrician or something oh. where I get to hang out with kids yeah, or, yeah, yeah. you know, but during the day yeah. and not surgery, no <laughs> ER. You have your hours. little limits there. Yeah. yeah. Now, Allison, what is your favorite with regards to food? Oh, boy. Because we're foodies here. What is your favorite? guilty pleasure like this is a must-have i have to have this day-to-day or um hmm. okay sweet salty no donuts so donuts i actually i, 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 I yes. can't even believe that i paused and hesitated and had to think about it it actually is because I, I was thinking yeah. you were going to ask me like my favorite food or something. Yeah, so yeah. I was like, oh, lasagna. My mom's lasagna. Yeah. No, no, no. Donuts. <laughs> donuts are definitely my guilty pleasure. Are you, uh, is there a specific type of donut? Like- Chocolate glazed. Oh, you just knew that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. I do like a Boston yes. cream. Oh, I love Boston cream. I do like a yes. Boston cream, but yes. yeah. So my yeah. thing was, I was telling you on another show yesterday where I love taking glazed donuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you chop them in half like a bagel. Okay. Put it into a toaster. Let it get creme brulee so it gets a little toasty on there. Hmm. Then you scoop out a, a ice, cream. ice cream in there, down the hatch. 
that's amazing. Amazing. Yes. Because for you know for a very long time, ice cream was my guilty pleasure. Oh, it's still mine. And I just had to. I had to stop. Yeah. I mean, I was eating ice cream every night. <laughs> I had to stop. Yeah. So that you might be honest, and you put yes. it in the regular pop up toaster. Or do you in have a toaster a, oven? In a toaster oven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't have a toaster oven. So I got a toaster oven just for just that. Just for that. <laughs> yes. Because okay. like, well, if you're gonna get one, I might as well get one that I can put my yeah. donuts on there. Yeah. Yeah. But that mm. with a with a chocolate waves doing it might actually be really good yeah. too. Mm. Mm. We'll have to have like yes. a guilty pleasures. Uh, a guilty pleasures party. <laughs> yes. Oh my God, that so doesn't cool. sound right though. <laughs> oh my that God. might have to be edited that out. Be edited. <laughs> yes. We'll have to say that very differently. Cool. Cool. Thanks again, Allison. Is yeah, awesome. Thank you so much, uh, yes. Dr. Jerry. Yeah. This was so much fun. Yep. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. It really does mean a lot to us. And don't forget to like, share, subscribe, or comment if you got at least one or two helpful insights or takeaways to help you get to your next level.